This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Okay, so we are in chapter, the end of chapter 50, in the middle of page 759. So he was describing, in this chapter, he was describing a love that's qualitatively different and superior to all the loves that he described before that. The other loves he refers to as a love of silver versus this love is gold, the gold standard of love. It's different, just like gold, not only more valuable than silver, it's, it's, it's not only quantitatively more valuable than silver, it's qualitatively different. Something about gold that sparkles, that you know, we respond to gold in ways we don't respond to silver. You know, you buy your spouse, you buy them something gold. Something that's valuable. You, know, you buy silver, it's not, it's not the same. Um, there's something about gold that just touches us very deeply. So too, there's a love that's different and superior to all the other loves. All the other loves comes from the word in Hebrew, gold, kesef which comes from the word I desire, I yearn, I love but all of those loves are a love you love something and therefore you bring it you make it part of you you bring it towards you you bring it so it's you love Hashem because Hashem is your life you love Hashem because Hashem is your father you love Hashem like a child loves a parent these are all loves that you internalize you integrate it expands you it opens you up but then you have a love that's compared to fire. That's the love of gold. That's the gold standard of love. Just like fire. Fire consumes. A love that consumes you. A love that burns up any sense of I. It's a love where you want to run away from yourself and run to your beloved. You want to transcend yourself. A love that, that shakes you to your core. A love that causes you to desire to become inseparable with Hashem until you become lovesick for Hashem and until you can actually expire you reach a level where as King David HaMelech says King David says in Psalms my soul yearns for you is thirsty for you until you reach a level where your soul could literally expire now there's a huge difference between this singular love, the gold standard of love, and all the other loves. The difference is, where does this love lead you? What are you looking for? What do you desire? It's your goal. So when you love Hashem because Hashem is your life, that leads you directly to study more Torah and do mitzvahs. Because since you want to live, 
and the way and you want life, you love life and then you realize oh, what's the source of life Hashem is the source of life so if you want to plug in and you want to feel energized and you want to feel vital and vibrant and alive the more Torah you study, the more mitzvot you do the more plugged in you are, the more connected you are the more alive you are so the love leads you directly to study more Torah and to do more mitzvot and the same thing as all the other loves that he described earlier But the love of fire, however, this love does not lead a person to want to study Torah and do mitzvah. This love leads you to, you, you want to expire. You want to just go beyond yourself. You want to become absorbed within Hashem. You want to lose yourself within Hashem. So it leads you to the exact opposite direction of studying Torah and doing mitzvah. You want to become one with Hashem. You're on fire. You're consumed with a passionate love for Hashem, a yearning for Hashem, such an intense thirst, an intense desire for Hashem, that your whole being is thirsty. So this is not a love that leads you to open up a piece of Talmud and start learning some legal law about if an ox gores a gorza gores a cow you want to become one with Hashem you want to overcome any sense of separation between you and Hashem you want to overcome any boundary anything that separates between you and Hashem because you realize how Hashem's transcendence Hashem's essence transcends the whole frame of reference transcends the whole world and therefore nothing could satisfy you. Not only nothing material can satisfy you, nothing spiritual can satisfy that hunger. What is spirituality? Spirituality is, compared to Hashem is absolutely meaningless and nothing. The world to come, the soul, afterlife, that doesn't satisfy you. You want Hashem Himself. Hashem Himself who remains a complete enigma and mystery and transcendent is transcendent completely beyond and in relation to Hashem, the whole universe doesn't exist. It means absolutely nothing. So you want to connect with the essence of Hashem. So this doesn't lead a person to want to do something to fulfill, to fulfill a need that I have. A deep need that I have. No, the need that I have is to overcome any sense of self, any sense of I. They become completely nullified and become completely absorbed and unified within Hashem. So this doesn't lead one to study Torah, to do mitzvot. It leads one to become a state of complete union with Hashem. And yet, the purpose of all loves, as we learned earlier, the Zohar refers to the love of Hashem and the awe of Hashem like the wings of a bird. A bird that has no wings is a kosher bird. Wing, a bird doesn't have to have wings. If a bird is missing a wing, it's not missing anything. It's completely kosher. So it can't fly. The bird itself is not, the wings are not part of the bird. So the bird are the mitzvot. That's the bird. That's the essence. The love and the awe and the spirituality, those are the wings that cause the bird to soar, to be able to fly. It's a means to an end. It's a means 
in order to infuse the Torah and the mitzvot with vitality, with life, instead of the mitzvot being leaden and dead. Like in some synagogues you walk into and you just feel it's so heavy. There's no life. There's no energy. There's no vitality. Nobody is soaring and nothing is soaring and nothing is going anywhere. Everything is stuck. Everything is mechanical. Everything is by rote. There's no passion. There's no life. There's no energy. There's no love. There's no, there's nothing. But the deed is done. So you have the Torah. You have the mitzvot. You have the bird. But the bird is not going anywhere. The bird can't fly. The bird can't take off the ground. It's, it's, it's very grounded. But if you want the mitzvah to be an elevated experience where the mitzvah elevates you and causes you to soar, that depends on the wing. That, for that, you need wings. You have to infuse the mitzvah with energy, with life, with sensitivity, with egolessness, with love, with passion, with joy. So the purpose of the mitzvah, the purpose of the love, is not an end in itself. The mitzvah is an end in itself. That's the purpose. The soul comes down to this world. The purpose is to study Torah and do mitzvah. The spirituality and the soul, the spirituality, the love and the awe, these are the wings. They are a means to an end in order to help the bird fly. And that's true of all loves. Not only the loves that lead, that clearly lead a Jew to study Torah. When you love God because God is your life, naturally you want to run to a piece of Talmud and you want to learn Gemara, you want to learn some Torah. Because this is life. You're plugging in, you're connecting with the source of life. You want to do a mitzvah. You want to truly be alive. In order to truly be alive, it's not through anything material, external, Superficial. The only thing that can really cause you to truly be alive is if you plug into the source of life, Hashem. So the more Torah you study, the more you deepen your study of Torah, the more mitzvah you do, the more alive you are. So you do the mitzvah with a love, with a passion, with enthusiasm. You can't get enough. You can't do enough. You can't learn enough. Okay, that, then you, there you see the connection. How these, this type of love is a wing to the bird. But that's true of all loves. Even the gold standard of love, the love that he described in this chapter, chapter 50, even this love also is just a wing to the bird. But that's the question. How does this love lead a Jew to study Torah and the mitzvah? It seems it's exact opposite direction. It's pushing a Jew, just like a difference between fire and water. Water flows down. Water will find the lowest space. That's the nature of water. It comes from the top down. When you love God because God is life, you want to draw down that life into, into your life. How do you draw down that life? But when you study Torah, you do mitzvot, you're drawing down that energy and that life into your being. God is your father. You want to draw him closer to you by studying Torah and doing mitzvot. God loves me and I can't help but love him. So that, all of that leads to Torah mitzvot. But the love of fire, fire is the exact opposite direction. Fire jumps up. Fire is from the bottom up. Fire leaps up. Fire wants to lose its existence. You have to force it down. Fire is egoless. You can light a thousand candles. There's room for everyone. There's no, it doesn't take away because fire 
wants to lose its existence. It wants to become extinguished. It wants to become absorbed in its source. It will leap towards the small fire, will leap towards the greater fire. It wants to leap towards its source. So the fire is leaving this world, is rising above this world, is seeking and searching for Hashem. As Rabbi Kiva said, when Rabbi Kiva, one of the ten martyrs, was tortured to death. And he said, and the students, Rabbi Shimon asked him, you can love Hashem. Here, when the Romans are combing your skin with metal combs and torturing you to death so brutally, mercilessly, and you can still say, you still love Hashem. And he said, all my life, his response was, all my life I've yearned for this moment. All my life I asked myself, when will I have the merit to be able to show my dedication to God, to be able to die for the sake of my Jewishness, to show how dedicated and devoted I am for, to Hashem, that I'm ready to give up my life for His unity, for His reality, for His truth. All my life I've been waiting for this moment. Now that this moment has arrived, of course I say it joyfully. Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem. And he, and he died. So the whole Rabbi Kiva is an example of that love of fire, that gold standard of love. What motivated him? What drove him? It was that yearning, that desire to lose himself, forget about himself, become one with Hashem, to become united and absorbed with the essence of Hashem, to lose his sense of ego, a sense of identity, a sense of I, any sense of separation, but to become one with Hashem. And he says, all my life I've been looking and seeking for this moment. That's what he lived for. That's what his life was all about. So this is a fiery love. This is a love that consumes any sense of I. So how does this love lead a Jew to study Torah and to do mitzvot? It seems to lead you in the opposite direction. It causes you to want to sacrifice your life for Hashem. To give up your life, Hashem. To expire in ecstasy. In a fiery, fiery love for Hashem. And that's what he's going to explain now. The author Rebbe will now explain that since this love of Hashem, such that the soul is on the verge of inspiring, <coughs> it cannot inspire one directly to serve Hashem through Torah and Mitzvah. The order of one's divine service through occupation with Torah study and mitzvah, a service deriving from this intense love, is possible only in a manner of retreat. Example, when the soul withholds itself from expiring in order to fulfill the divine intent, which can only be realized when the soul remains within the body. He says that you're right. This love does not lead a person to study Torah and do mitzvah, this love leads a person to sacrifice his life, to give up his life. But when a Jew reaches a level where he feels that he's ready to expire in ecstasy, he puts the brakes on and he stops and he says, wait a minute, what does Hashem want from me? Is this what Hashem wants from me at this moment? Does Hashem want me to expire? Does He need another angel in heaven? Another disembodied soul? 
Why did Hashem create? What does Hashem want? This love, it's not about me. He's burning up with this fiery yearning for Hashem. He wants to become one with the essence of Hashem. All he cares about is what? It's about Hashem. So precisely for that reason, since all you care about is Hashem Himself, it's not about me. It's not even about my own spiritual benefit, my own spiritual elevation. It's only about Hashem. Nothing else matters. Nothing else exists. Therefore, you ask yourself the question, if all that matters and all that exists and all that's real is Hashem Himself, what does Hashem want? Hashem doesn't want me to expire. Hashem doesn't want me to leave this world. Hashem needs me and wants me to remain a soul in a body and He needs me and He wants me to study Torah and do mitzvah. He needs me to be His ambassador in this world and He wants me to be His representative in this world and He wants me to bring holiness and Torah and mitzvah, through Torah and mitzvah bring godliness into this world. So at that moment of passion, when you're about to expire, precisely because it's so pure and it's so genuine, there's not even a trace of ego. The fire has consumed, has burned any sense of separation between you and Hashem. It's precisely for that reason that you have the ability to tear yourself away from your love and to go back go back into the rea- into reality to go back into the material world into the day to day world and this is what he calls shuv going back there's a ratsi ratsi is the desire to escape yourself to go out of yourself to go beyond yourself and shuv is the ability to go back see many many people don't negotiate this too well is Ratsui and Shuv. Because it takes a tremendous, almost a heroic, superhuman quality to have such a flexibility to go back and forth. And we're not playing games here. We're talking about a Ratsui, a desire that's genuine. You're about to expire. So the Balshamta, before he would pray, he wasn't sure if he would make it, if he would ever make it alive through the prayer. Because when he prayed and he said, love you, Hashem, with all your heart, he didn't say, love Hashem with all your heart. At that moment, he loved Hashem with all his heart. And when the Pasuk continues, with all your soul, with all your being, every fiber of your being, every bone in his body, he reached a state where his soul was ready to expire. Hashem, he wasn't sure if he's going to make it. Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sure we're going to make it in time for the Cholent or <laughs> the rabbi is speaking too long. But the, uh, the Baal Shem Tov was worried that maybe he's not going to make it through the prayer. He won't come out alive because he was on fire. When he prayed, it, it seared his soul. He was on fire. It was real. It was an experience. It wasn't just saying the words. That's what prayers should be. Not, not rushing through the words and looking at our clocks and dreaming of the Kiddush. So if it's for real, if you're genuinely experiencing a Ratsui, that your soul literally is yearning for godliness, 
how can you switch on and off? Okay, now I'm going back. I'm going into outer space, and now I'm returning. How, how do we shuttle from one extreme to the other? Here we completely transcend, we're going into outer space, we're completely transcending. We have a whole different perspective. We see the world as, as we've never seen before. From the top, from a whole different perspective. And then, shuttle right back. Go back to your 9 to 5 job. <laughs> Go back to paying your bills as if nothing happened. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's almost in, humanly impossible. How do you expect a person? At the moment of Rasu, it's genuine. At this moment, I'm on fire. And at this moment, I'm lovesick. And at this moment, I'm, I'm in danger of expiring. Literally expiring. My soul is ready to leap out of my body. To return to its, to its maker. To become one with Hashem. And the very next moment, to have the discipline to stop and to return and to re-enter and to go back. The Talmud says it's a rare quality. There were four great rabbis. Ben Zayma, Ben Azai, Elisha Ben Avui, and Rabbi Kiva. And they all entered the mystical experience. They all entered the paradise. They had a very deep, profound, mystical experience together. The Talmud tells us the results. The results were not promising. Ben Azai died. Ben Zayma went mad. Elisha ben Avuya became a heretic. Rabbi Akiva was the only one of the four who entered in peace and left in peace. And which begs the question, why does the Talmud say, every word in the Talmud is precise, why does the Talmud say Rabbi Akiva entered in peace and left in peace? They all entered in peace. They were whole and intact when they entered. They were righteous, they were sages, they were holy people. But then they couldn't, they didn't make it to the finishing line. <laughs> one died in the process, and one went mad in the process, and one became a heretic. And Rabbi Kiva was the only one who left from the whole experience wiser, but he was left whole. He was not shattered, he was not broken, he didn't become a heretic. He, be- he became a much better Rabbi Akiva as a result of this profound experience. So the Rebbe explains that Talmud is helping us understand why is it that Rabbi Akiva was the only one who had the ability to leave in peace, to leave whole, intact, without being broken and shattered by this profound experience, versus the other three who were not successful. The difference started how they entered. They entered differently. Because Rabbi Akiva entered with the proper, the proper approach, therefore, he had the ability not only to enter in peace, but also to live in peace. The others, to them it was a deep, personal, mystical experience. And human nature is, human nature, you don't have that flexibility. You know, it's not possible. Once you're consumed by something, it's all-consuming. It, it, it's fully, it engages you. So once they were consumed by this mystical experience, <laughs> they didn't have the flexibility then to go return and to go back to their previous <laughs> lives. They just couldn't. They just couldn't go back. Once they experience life, you taste life on such a deep level, there's no going back. Then as I expired, his soul just expired. I, I can't go back to this life. 
Ben Zayma became mad. Maybe he was sane and everyone else was mad. But the bottom line is he couldn't readjust to society. Elisha ben Avuya, he couldn't go back, organize religion. It's, it's, once he had such a deep experience, he, he just couldn't, couldn't put his heart back into, into it. Rabbi Kiva was the only one who had the ability, the flexibility. Because Rabbi Kiva entered in peace. The Rabbi Kiva, this was like the gold standard of love that he described here. It was a love that was so pure, the gold consumed and burned any trace of ego of I. His desire for Hashem wasn't ego-based. It wasn't because he wanted to experience a peak experience, to experience higher levels of consciousness, because it felt so good and because it's so meaningful and so profound. He had one desire. All I want is Hashem. It's not about me. It's not about I. It's not even about my spiritual I, my expanded I. All that exists, all that matters is Hashem. Because to Hashem, nothing else really exists. All that exists is Hashem Himself. Hashem's essence completely transcends the whole frame of reference of the entire universe. The whole universe, we don't even begin to scratch the surface of the surface of who Hashem is for himself. And Rabbi Kiva was only interested and in, all he cared about is when could I become one with Hashem? That's all he cared about. And therefore, if there's not even a trace of ego, even a spiritual ego, spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. But if it's purely about Hashem, then you have the ability at that peak moment when you're on fire and your soul is about to expire. At that moment, you can tear yourself away and say, wait a minute, it's not about me. It's about Hashem. So what does Hashem want of me? Hashem needs me here. So you stop, you put the brakes on, and you go back. A beautiful story with Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. When he was sitting in prison, for publishing the Tanya, his opponents, the Mesnagdim, the establishment, felt so threatened by the Alter Rebbe that they literally tried to kill him. I'm talking about religious Jews. Felt so threatened by the Tanya, and we can understand why, because we've already swapped to chapter 50. You understand the power of the Tanya, how liberating and empowering the Tanya is, and empowers the simplest Jew. The establishment felt very threatened. Alter Rebbe was turning over the cards. You know, until then, Jewish life had a hierarchy. Everyone has to know their place. The leader is the leader, and the follower is the follower. The simple Jew has to know his place. And they felt so threatened. Of course, they would never admit that they're a bunch of murderers, so they, they found all different excuses and rationalizations how they can inform an Alter Rebbe, tattle him to the Russian government, inform on him, make up lies about him, blood libels, that he was supporting the Turkish, the enemy of Russia, because he was sending money to the Jews in Israel. Israel then was under the Ottoman Empire, and, is, and Russia was at war with Turkey. So they made up a blood libel that Alter Rebbe is a counter-revolutionary. Look, he's sending money to the enemy. A, a, lie, a pure outright, outright lie. 
and they literally tried to have him killed. So when Al-Turabi was sitting in prison, he was visited by the Minister of Culture, the Russian Minister of Culture, who was a very learned man, steeped in, in the Bible. And he had a conversation with Alter Rebbe, and he saw right away that this is Alter Rebbe's uh, everything. That, everything his enemies said about him were pure lies. Alter Rebbe is a holy person. It's, it was obvious, and he, he just loved this conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he says, "Tell me, I always had a there's one part in the Bible which always troubled me. I never really understood. When Adam sins, right at the beginning, it says that God speaks to Adam and says, "Where are you?" God doesn't know where he is. God has to ask him where he is. I don't understand. So Alter Rebbe says, well, you're a learned man. I'm sure you know what Rashi says. Rashi says, the great commentator, that he was, Hashem was trying to enter into conversation with him. Instead of overwhelming him, he says, where are you? He says, yeah, I know, I know that explanation, but it doesn't, sat- it doesn't satisfy me. Not a good explanation. <coughs> Salt Rebbe says, looks at him and he says, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the eternity of the Torah? That God is speaking to us today through the Torah? He says, yes, I do. He says, so this is what the Torah means. God is asking every person, Ayeka, where are you in life? Let's say the Alter Rebbe says, if a person is, I forget the amount of years he said, let's say if a person is 54 years, years old. That's exactly the amount of years of this minister. So God is asking this person, what have you done in life? Have you done anything good in life? Anything special in your life? Ayeka, where are you? He was so impressed. The Alter Rebbe knew how old he was. And it spoke to him. And it resonated. It just, it just rang true. That the Torah is eternal and God is asking every person, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you in your relationship with Hashem? Where are you in this world? What have you accomplished? Have you fulfilled your mission, divine mission in, this, in life? Ayeka, where are you at? He slapped Alter Rebbe in the back and he says, bravo. And later on he was a big influence to help the Alter Rebbe be released because he testified in front of the, the king the, the, how, spe- how special the Alter Rebbe was. The Tsar, he testified in front of the Tsar, how special Alter Rebbe was. Alter Rebbe later said that when he told this Jew this question, I mean, this minister, this, this answer, he actually saved his own life. Because in prison, he had such intense revelations of godliness like he's never had ever before in his lifetime. Because he sacrificed his life to teach and to publicize the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov revealed to him, not only in a, in, a, in a spiritual form, in a bodily form. His teacher, Rabbi Dov Ber, appeared to him. He, was, he had such company, such miraculous company, such divine revelations that he's never, ever experienced all his life. And just the fact that he had the merit to be able to sacrifice his life just for the teachings of Hasidus, the crown jewels of the Torah, he was in ecstasy. He said he's reached such a level of ecstasy that he was in danger of expiring. <laughs> he was in danger of expiring. Because he was sitting in prison and all he had was his, his, his ecstatic experiences of experiencing godliness in a level he's never ever experienced before. 
he wasn't doing anything in prison. He couldn't do anything in prison. All he had, he has these intense, profound 53 days. Every day more intense than the next. Profound, mystical, spiritual, godly experience. He was about to expire. But when he explained that Ayaka is a turn, Hashem is asking each and every Jew, Ayaka, where are you? It resonated with himself as well. Hashem is asking you, Ayaka, where are you? Do I need another disembodied soul? Do I need another angel in heaven? Ayaka, are you fulfilling the divine mission, the divine purpose? What, what does God need you for? God needs you to remain firmly planted in this world. And that caused me to stop. That gave me the ability to say no and not to cross the line, not to cross the boundary, not to dissolve and disappear, but to keep myself grounded, firmly grounded, and to bring myself back, back to reality. To pull off a Rabbi Akiva who achieved the deepest mystical experience but knew when to stop. When he reached the edge and he was about to pass over, cross the line, about to expire, he stopped and he came back down to earth. He re-entered. Wiser and more richer because of that experience. So, on one hand, Ayeka is to a Jew, Hashem is speaking to a Jew who perhaps is about to sin and about to do, to, to, to do something wrong. And because you remember, Hashem told you, Ayeka, you're able to overcome your natural urges, your natural instincts, and you're able to do the right thing. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, and it's not less of a, of a struggle, it's for the tzaddik who's about to expire in ecstasy, who has achieved this, this, uh, this golden level of love. And yet he has to overcome that urge to expire, that temptation to expire. It's a very powerful temptation. Just like a, a person who has to overcome a human temptation, the tzaddik has to struggle with the godly temptation. He wants to expire. It's so much easier. It's so tempting. You just want to leave the human coil, leave the body, and become one with Hashem. But with a superhuman ability, you say no, and you stop, and you do the right thing. This is the shuv. This is what he says. This is the shuv going in the exact opposite direction. Here, you're going like a fire. You're going upwards. You want to expire. You want to lose yourself, forget about yourself, become one with Hashem. But because all you care about and all you love and all you, you want is Hashem himself, and you remember, what does Hashem want of me? Hashem wants me here, in this world, firmly planted in this world. So therefore, right before I cross the edge, when I reach the edge, right before I cross, and it's too, it's too late, I go back. I return. I go back into the body. I go back into reality. As Alter Rebbe once was with Rabbi Avram, the son of the, he's called Avram the angel. He was the only child of Rabbi Dov Ber, the Magadim is rich. And they once had a mystical experience together. And Alter Rebbe felt that they were both about to expire. It was too intense. It was too powerful. It was too overwhelming. And he immediately jumped out of the circle, grabbed the bagel, smeared it with butter, took a bite, and gave Rabbi Ram the angel also a bite. And that saved both of their lives. 
because they were literally about to uh, pass out, pass away. So this is the temptation that the tzaddik has to struggle with. It's a, it's a different level of struggle. Everyone in life struggles. No one in life escapes the struggle. But we have to struggle with negativity. The tzaddik is struggling that he's so in love with Hashem and he's, that his soul shouldn't expire. So he has to restrain himself. He has to overcome that desire and he has to say no. And he has to stop. And he has to return and come back. And when the tzaddik overcomes his struggle, he gives us strength for us to deal with our struggles. This is the shuv that overcomes the urge that comes from this love, from the gold standard of love, and causes a Jew to go back into reality, to go back into the body, and to fulfill your duties and obligations to study Torah and to do mitzvot, and to bring Hashem into this world. Because that's what Hashem desired. Hashem created this world because He wanted us to bring godliness into this world. To bring it into our daily lives. That's why Hashem created boundaries. He created limits. So everything has to have a limit. Everything has to have a boundary. The high priest is not allowed into the Holy of Holies only once a year. There are limits. It's off limits. You can, you can get too close. You can be burnt up. You can be consumed. Exactly what happened to Nadav and Avil. So you have to know your limit. You have to know your boundaries. And then you have to know how to go back. Don't cross the red line. That's a red line. To expire, that's crossing a red line. So it leads you to the edge, this love. But because you're in love with Hashem, because you have this fiery love for Hashem, and all you care about is Hashem, right when you reach the edge, you remember, wait a minute. It's not about me. It's about Hashem. Is this what Hashem wants of me? The answer is no. Hashem wants me back. Down here. And that's why the tzaddik, or the, the Jew who reaches this level of love, has the ability to tear himself away from this mystical experience, which is beckoning, which he yearns so intensely for, and is lovesick and is so thirsty for, and is about to expire and he's burning up with his fiery, passionate love. And yet he has the ability to tear himself away and to come back into reality and to fulfill his, accomplish what Hashem needs him. So this is the tzaddik. It's back and forth. The tzaddik goes towards Hashem and then he goes back. We pray and in prayer, as the Baal wasn't sure he's going to make it through prayer, but then prayer comes to an end. And you've got to go back into the real world. We have Shabbos, and then six days a week you go back into the real world. That's the life of a Jew. It's not easy. <laughs> it's a paradox. It's full of drama, and it's dynamic, and it's vibrant, and it's full of excitement, but then there's also the overcoming. The overcoming, the struggle. Overcoming not only ego, overcoming materialistic ego, overcoming a spiritual ego. Because to expire, that's fulfilling your ego. But if you really care about Hashem, that's not what Hashem wants. Of you. Hashem wants you to come back into, into, into reality. As it is written in Sefer Yetzirah, if your heart hastens, return to one. If your heart hastens, refers refer to the craving of the soul that is in the right side of the heart, the abode of the divine soul. When this craving predominates and bursts into flame and glows in such rapture that the soul is consumed with the desire, klot anefesh, 
to pour itself out into the embrace of its father, its source, who gives one life and to leave its confinement in the corporeal and physical body to attach itself to him, blessed be he. When one is consumed with such an incontainable, rapturous love, seeking even at the cost of self-extinction to become attached to Hashem, there must now be a deliberate return to the One. Then one must take to heart the teaching of our sages of blessed memory, despite yourself you must live. Despite your craving for expiry in Kvotanefesh, you must nevertheless remain alive. Okay, so he says, if your heart runs, the book of formation written by Avraham, one of the greatest and earliest works of Kabbalah, by Avraham himself, so it says, he writes there, that if your heart runs, return to Echad, to one. Now, there's another word in Hebrew for one. What's that? Yachid. But Yachid means exclusive. One means that there's two. There's a third. Yachid means it's exclusive. Wouldn't it make more sense to say, refer to Hashem as Yachid? Yet we say, Shema Yisrael, listen here, O Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, God is one. Why don't we say, God is Yachid, Hashem Yachid? Why do you say, God is one? God is exclusive. There's nothing else but God. When you say Echad, means Hashem is the first. He's one, he's number one, but there's a number two, and there's a number three, and there's a number four. Wouldn't it be clearer if we said Hashem Yachid? All there is is Hashem, there's nothing else besides Hashem. And the answer is, it's precisely, we use the word very carefully. Because Yachid means there's nothing but Hashem. If there's nothing but Hashem, then the world doesn't exist. All there is is Hashem. But Hashem created the world, and He created the world for a reason. And that's included in the word echad. Echad is, as the, as the rabbis say, Aleph is one, Hashem. Ches refers to the earth and the seven heavens, eight. And Dawid refers to the four corners of the world, north, south, east, west. And that's precisely the point. Echad means that there is a world. The world doesn't dissolve, there is a world. There's time, and there's space, and there's heaven, and there's earth. And yet, this world is unified within Hashem. That's what Hashem desired. Hashem, the whole purpose of creation is, Hashem created the world intentionally. It's not just an illusion, like the Eastern mystics claim, that this world is one big Maya, an illusion. It's not an illusion. God created this world intentionally this way. That we should feel separate, and we should feel independent, and that there's time, and there's space. But the purpose is that we should permeate the whole world should be permeated with a sense of the unity of Hashem. It should be permeated with the Aleph. That time and space should be permeated. We should fill our lives, not empty our minds and empty our lives. We should fill our lives and fill our minds and fill our whole being with the knowledge and the awareness of Hashem and brings Hashem's awareness and holiness into this world by taking the objects of this world and doing a mitzvah with it. You take the leather hide of an animal and you write a Torah scroll and you put up a mezuzah and you connect your home and you connect your business and you connect everything that you do. You bring the awareness of Hashem, the reality, the holiness of Hashem into this entire world. So that's the whole purpose. That's why we don't say Hashem Yachid. Hashem Yachid means nothing exists. All there is is God. So there is no world. There's nothing to work with. Hashem Echad. There is a world. There are seven heavens and there is a world. And there are four corners. And there's time and there's space. And in this in this human consciousness, 
human consciousness should be permeated with a sense of Aleph, the sense of the unity of Hashem, the reality of Hashem. That's why he says, if your heart is rushing, in the book of formation, if your heart is rushing with a desire to become dissolved within Hashem and become absolutely unified within Hashem, and you're burning up with a desire to lose any trace of separation, any sense of separation, any sense of I, of remember to return to Echad. It doesn't say return to Yachid, return to Echad. Remember what Hashem desired. Hashem desired a world, that there should be a world, that there should be a human being, and there should be human consciousness. And you should go about your daily life, and there should be boundaries and limitations. And within that world, you should inject into that world. The Jews charged with a mission to inject into this world, into this frame of reference, the human frame of reference, to inject a sense of Hashem, the unity of Hashem. And that's what it says in Ethics of Our Fathers. By force you live. What do you mean by force you live? Because really, you want to expire in ecstasy. Out of this fiery love, Hashem. But you force yourself to come back into this world. You force yourself to hold on to the body. You force yourself back into, into reality. This is the dynamic of a Jew's life. Back and forth. In this body, keep it alive for the purpose of drawing down the higher life force from the life of life. Blessed be he through the life-giving Torah. Through this, there will be a dwelling place in the lower world and created beings for his blessed oneness in a revealed state. Just as in an ordinary dwelling, a person's identity is totally revealed, so will the true essence of the divine oneness be then revealed among the beings of this lower world. As explained above, that this is the ultimate divine intent, that a human being's service of God should make of the world a dwelling place for him. And this is the meaning of return to the one, retreat from your love of God in a state of kvot anefesh, for the sake of the one, for the sake of revealing God's oneness in the world. So the whole purpose of creation is that God desired to dwell, to live in this world. Just like when a person is at home. Where does Hashem feel at home? Where does He want to feel at home? Paradoxically, ironically, He wants to feel at home in this world. He only feels at home in this world. Not in the heavens, not in the heaven of heavens. But in this world, when a human being studies Torah, to all the challenges that we have, and we study Torah, and we do a mitzvah, we draw down Hashem's essence. Hashem becomes revealed in this world, and Hashem says, I feel at home in this world. When a person is at home, we let you hear them. When you're out in the streets, you project a certain image. Everyone acts. You project. It's a projection of you. It's not the real you. You want to see what a person is really like when they're at home. The guard is down, they're not projecting, they're not acting, they're not... They are their natural selves. Heaven is a projection. Spirituality, angels, high levels of consciousness, is all projections. It's not Hashem. It's just a, a glimmer of a ray. It's just a projection. Hashem is acting, so to speak. Where does Hashem feel at home? Where does Hashem completely feel, is totally revealed and manifest in all His glory and all His essence? Only in this physical world. Through the Jew. Through Torah mitzvah. When a Jew studies Torah and a Jew does a mitzvah, that's how we reveal and draw down God's essence into this world. That's the whole purpose of creation. That's why God created the heavens and the heavens of heaven. That's what God desired. That's what God wanted. So when you come back, when you return and bring yourself back down to reality, 
you are fulfilling the divine purpose. That's what God needs you. God wants you in this world. He wants you to bring and to draw down His essence in this material, physical world, which mystically appears to be the most core, the coarsest world, the most materialistic world, the lowest of all the worlds, the most distant, the most alienated from Hashem, the exact opposite, the antithesis of everything that's godly and refined and good and genuine. This false world, this is the world that God wanted and the only place that God feels at home. So even though your soul desires to escape the world, to escape the body, and to, and to enter into a world which is all light and all divine and all good and all holy, you overcome that desire, you pull yourself back, and you re-enter into this gray, limited world that we inhabit, human consciousness. How often do you feel like leaving this world? <laughs> <laughs> if you're asking why we're we learning about this when it seems so remote. No, I'm asking you a question as I thought. Firstly, this class is not to, to speak about me. Um, but this is, obviously, these are very, very high levels, which I don't think uh, most of us have ever uh, really experienced. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for you or for others. Um, but this is a very, a very essential point for all of us, and it's, and it's relevant to all of us. Because the whole dynamic of Judaism is so different than the whole dynamic of religion and mysticism, where the ideal is to become a, no, a monk, a nun, a priest, to escape, to run away from reality, to run away from the world, to go on some mountaintop, to immerse yourself in holiness and, and tune in and tune out. The whole thrust of Judaism is the exact opposite. The thrust of Judaism is you have to go into, you have to be in this world and you have to bring Hashem into this world. But at the same time, you also have to have this l desire to go away from the world. And it's this dynamic, this tension, this dynamic of going back and forth and getting back and forth as we're about to learn, this is what keeps a Jew alive. This is what keeps us going. This is what keeps our juices flowing. This is what enables us. In order to be able to do tikkun olam, in order to be able to mend the world, you, you can't be a part of the world. If you're part of the world, and you're part of the problem. You have to be something of an outsider. You have to want to be somewhere else. But because you force yourself to come back into this world, that keeps you honest, it keeps you on the edge, it keeps you focused, it keeps you connected. Because how do we have the ability to transform materialism into something godly, into something divine? It's only when we're connected to the divine. It's not within the human ability, it's not the human capacity. How can a human being achieve, accomplish this, transform this materialistic world into something godly and to make this world a godly place that God says I feel at home. How is this possible? How can we take something, so this coarse material and transform it into something godly? It's a divine ability. And the only way we can accomplish it is if we're connected to the divine. So that's why once a week we have Shabbos. Once a week you have to completely transcend this world for 26 hours you're not part of this world you're, you're in a different world on Yom Kippur the world doesn't exist when you're studying Torah when you're praying 
At that moment, you're not thinking about the stock market, you're not, th- you're not thinking about your business. You are completely, totally immersed in that world. You're connecting with Hashem. So it's only when you have that connection to something greater than yourself, when, you want to, when you're trying to connect with something that's beyond you, but you have to force yourself to come back into this world. Only then are you able to be effective in bringing Hashem into this world. But if you're part of this world and you feel so comfortable being in this world, you can't do tikkun olam. You are part of the problem. You can't bring any healing. You can't shed any light. You can't bring any real transformation, any real change, any healing, any mending. You can bring a lot of darkness. You can intensify the darkness. That's, a, that's all you can do. But you don't have that ability. So in order for a Jew to be able to accomplish what he needs to accomplish in this world, as we're about to learn, you have to have this dynamic, back and forth. You breathe in and you breathe out. You have to constantly, it's a constant cycle of wanting to expire and then forcing yourself to come back, to be grounded. And then that prompts you to, again, you want to, you would rather be totally immersed with godliness or with holiness but you force yourself back to fulfill your divine mission and divine purpose. So it's only when you have this shuttling back and forth, when you have this dynamic, inner dynamic, only then are you able to truly fulfill your divine mission as a Jew. So this is relevant to all of us. Not on the level that he's discussing here, that we all experience this ecstasy and we're about to expire. You know, Reminds me of the uh, this five-year-old child who was standing in the in the hall in the hallway of the synagogue, and he's reading the signs. It was a whole bunch of plaques. For all, it was a memori- uh, Memorial Day weekend. There was a whole bunch of plaques for all the Jewish soldiers <coughs> that died died in the war. And the rabbi sees how this child. This, the rabbi walks out and he sees the child is. Is reading and Charles asked the rabbi, what, what are these names? So the rabbi tells him, these are the names. The rabbi lowers his voice, and these are the names of the Jews who died in service. So Charles says, which service? The morning service? <laughs> but I don't know, when was the last time you saw a Jew daven? That he's davening with such intensity that his soul is about to expire. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I've, seen some, I've seen some real Jews daven, real davening, but it's a rare thing. If you watch films of 770, okay, okay. I'm saying it's a, it's, it's a real thing, but that's how Jews used to daven. You know, davening was a time when they would connect with Hashem and they would... They were in a different world, you know? They were in a different took them to a different world, different reality. And you just find so, I don't know, you personally, but in so many shuls, called Moshkak shuls, where they don't have the Kavana, and they're talking all the time, they're talking about the stock market, they're talking about the you know, courts and everything else, and it happens. And I, I'm, uh, before I moved to Israel, I lived in the five towns, I still maintain an apartment there. And uh, it's not just the young Israel, it's the Kavad, which I'm about two blocks away from, unfortunately. <sighs> Is there talking at the Chabad here? <laughs> I don't know. Is there talking at the Chabad shul here? Shabbat. 
Oh, oh. On Shabbat. He wants to know if there's talking at the Chabad. Well, I didn't ask that question. I don't, I, 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 no, there, I don't think here. It's um, if there's any place where there shouldn't be talking, it's especially Chabad because davening was always so prominent. Davening was real. The Rebbe writes in the Tanya that no one should speak from right. the beginning to the end of davening. Right. Um, it, it's really, um, I mean, there's no excuses. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, the Rebbe once said, he once said, if, I bring, if a person is not ready to sit and pray for hours and to really meditate and reflect and take his prayer seriously. He says, at least you can do is cover your head with mm -hmm. a talus mm -hmm. and go to sleep. But as long, but other person may think you covered your head with a talus, who knows, you may be lost in deep contemplation. Yeah. So at least you won't disturb anyone because you're busy sleeping. You won't, be, you won't be talking with anyone. But at least, you know, at least fake it. Pretend that you're davening. But if davening is a value, if you realize oh, that davening is, this is the moment, this is the moment that you focus, you connect, you're centered, you're connecting with Hashem. This is what gives you life, this is what gives you energy. This is what brings it all together. Davening is like the backbone. You know, it's like the spine. What happens to a person without a spine? You have every organ, every limb, but you have no spine. The whole body collapses into a heap, into a pile of nothingness. The davening is the spine that gives the energy to everything that we do. Because it's that moment when you yearn, when you connect, when that gives you the life force and the love and the joy and the passion and the, <coughs> the energy to go and fulfill your divine mission. So if you're not davening, you're missing the main event. You know, this is... So it's like imagine you tell a joke and you miss the punchline. You're doing everything, you're fulfilling all your obligations, but there's no punchline, you know? There's no humor, there's no energy, there's no life, there's no joy. And you know what happens? Judaism becomes a burden. It's like paying income taxes. And then you just pay your beer minimum, and you go to every rabbi under the sun to find an excuse why you don't have to do this, and a loophole here, and a loophole there. And you get as many loopholes as you can. And, you know, the whole... Just tell them to give more to duck on that. Reduce your taxes. <laughs> So the whole, the whole thing becomes, becomes a burden. The whole Judaism becomes a burden. Instead of being something that's real and personal and relevant and alive and something that energizes you and something that you relate to and something that you connect with and something that means something to you and that's real, it becomes just, a, a, you know, just mechanical and by rote. And that's the saddest thing of all. To see a soulless Jew, a Jew is observant, who's soulless, must be the saddest thing in life. It's really the saddest thing in life. It's like seeing someone who's a billionaire, who has a billion dollars in the bank, and walks around homeless, in tatters, starving to death. A Jew who's observant, who's going through the motions, who's fulfilling all of the Torah and all of the mitzvot, but there's no, not an ounce of joy, not an ounce of love, of passion, of sensitivity, of feeling. Of that really, that's probably the saddest thing in life. I don't think there's anything sadder in life. You're already doing everything, and yet you're so impoverished. You're so impoverished. So a Jew comes to shul and sits in Yentavis, the middle of davening. There's nothing more impoverished. It, 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 it's, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic because the person is losing out, yeah. and he doesn't even realize he's missing the whole point. He missed the whole point of what this is all about. It's all about a relationship with Hashem. This is the moment. This is your moment, Shemana This is your private moment, your moment of intimacy with Hashem. And where are you? 
you're in the stock market, you're here, you're there, you're everywhere except, except here. Is anything more tragic? And as this explained in the Holy Zohar, that there be one in one, meaning that the unity which is feeling, the one of higher, the higher spiritual world or level, has become an aspect of the real world, becoming manifest in the oneness of the lower world of level or level. And this is the meaning of the text. Come, my beloved, to meet the bride color. Denote it, hanefesh, kala or cloth being etymology related. In this form of the law of God, one's cloth <coughs> should be expressed through causing my beloved to come, which means through drawing down beloved one, God himself, so that godliness will be revealed in the nether world. So on one hand, you desire to become one with Hashem. But then you want Hashem to come to you. You say, my beloved, come to me. Because you want to draw Hashem into this world. You want the hidden revelation of Hashem, the hidden part of Hashem to become revealed within the revealed world. And the way to do that is through Torah and mitzvot. So your love for Hashem leads you to want to come back into this world and to fulfill your mission of bringing Hashem into this world. Instead of me expiring and me coming to you, I want you to come to me. Because I, I return and I dedicate my life to bring you into, fill my life, bring you into my life, into my awareness, into my consciousness, into my human experience, into my day-to-day -day life. Would this one will be able to understand the saying of our sages of blessed memory. Despite yourself, even against your will, you must live, and despite yourself, you must die. He says two things. Firstly, you force yourself to live. In other words, you would rather die. But you force yourself to live, because your soul would rather expire in ecstasy. You want to become one with Hashem. You want to dissolve, you want to overcome any separation between you and Hashem. You want to become one with the essence of Hashem. But you force yourself. You, when you come to the edge, when you're about to cross, cross over, you stop. And you force yourself, you restrain yourself, and you force yourself back into the body, into reality, into human day-to-day -day reality. You tear yourself away from the shul, you tear yourself away from the synagogue, from the Besamedrash, from the Torah books, and you go back into the business world, and you go back into your day-to-day responsibility. But then the Mishnah says, You force yourself to die. What do you mean you force yourself to die? Because you want to live. From this saying, despite yourself you must live, we learn that in our service of Hashem, we shall be in the first instance desire the opposite of staying alive. And that remaining alive within the body has to be for force against our will. On the other hand, from our second saying, despite yourself you must die, we learn that we shall desire to remain alive and that the opposite of life shall be against our will. If so, the question arises, what then should one's desire be? Okay, it's a contradiction. <laughs> it's a paradox. One hand, you say you would rather die, but you force yourself to live. Okay, if I'm only forcing myself to live, then how can you say in the next breath, force yourself to die? What do you mean, force yourself to die? It means I want to live. 
but I force myself to die. It's one or the other. You, you just said that you want to die. And you're forcing yourself to live. So if you want to die and you're forcing yourself to live, how can you say that you force yourself to die? I mean, do you want to live? I thought you just said you want to die. You don't want to live. You're just forcing yourself to live. Here you're saying, no, I want to live, and you're forcing yourself to die. So what does that mean? And the answer is, here he's talking about it on, on, on a spiritual level. The simple meaning of the mission is that, you know, you don't want to... When the child is born, the child doesn't want to be born. The child would rather stay in heaven. You're forced to come down into this world. But once the soul comes down to this world, you don't want to die. You have to force the person to die. That's a simple meaning. But here he's explaining it on a deeper level. We're talking about on the spiritual, spiritual level. That by you force yourself to live because really you want to die in ecstasy of Hashem. We're not talking about the moment of birth or the moment of death. We're talking about how a Jew lives in life. Ethics of our fathers is here to teach us how to live. So why would ethics of our fathers tell us you know, when you're born, you don't want to be born, and when you die, you don't want to die. That, that's not, ethics of our fathers is coming to teach us, guiding us how we live today, while we're alive. So what does these, these two expressions, what, what does it, how, does, how does it relate to us today, here and now, while we're alive? So he explains, because really you've reached a level where your soul is in, in, has reached a fiery, passionate love for Hashem, that you want to expire in ecstasy, you want to become absorbed within Hashem. But you force yourself, you restrain yourself, and you force yourself to live. You force yourself to come back to reality. Shabbos is over. You force yourself to go back into reality. You would rather Shabbos continues. Six days a week Shabbos, one day day a week we work. But the Torah says, no, only one day a week Shabbos, and six days a week we work. You force yourself back into reality. Now, but then... A Jew is very genuine. So once you realize that this is what Hashem wants of me, Hashem wants me to become part of this world and to be part of this world and to operate in this world and to bring holiness into this world and to bring Hashem into this world. If this is what Hashem wants, once I realize that this is what Hashem wants, then this is what I genuinely want. I want to live. Because this is what Hashem wants of me. It's not about me. It's not about ego, it's not about me, it's about what Hashem wants. So if this is what Hashem wants of me, so I don't just do it because nebuch, I have to live. If this is what Hashem wants, I do it joyfully, and I do it wholeheartedly, and I do it enthusiastically. I am down to earth, and I am practical, and I am alive, and I bring holiness into this world. So then, at that moment, you reach a level where you really want to live. That becomes your desire. Not because you want to live. Because Hashem wants you to live. So you would think, okay, that's fine. So the ethics of our father says, no. You have to have now a new desire. You have to give birth now to a new desire. That you are burning with a fiery love. You want to again become absorbed within Hashem. Again, you want to, it bothers you. It's, it, this, it feels too narrowing, too constricting. The fact that you're, you feel imprisoned in this world, you feel you're trapped in this world, you, feel, you don't feel comfortable. The idea is not that you should feel comfortable. The idea is that once you force yourself and bring yourself back down into reality, a moment later, 
you give birth to a new desire. Oh, yeah, I have to get out of here. <laughs> I have to become one with Hashem. And you go back and forth and back and forth. It's a constant to and fro. Why is this so important? This is the will of Hashem. This is what Hashem wants of me. This is my divine mission. Let me celebrate my mission. Let me joyfully carry out my mission. Hashem wants me to live, so let me celebrate life and let me live. Why should I feel uncomfortable? Why should I feel it's narrow, constricted, and confined, and I want to escape, I want to go beyond myself? The answer is because that's the only way you can fulfill your mission. The moment you grow comfortable, <laughs> then you, are become, you have been touched by the darkness, and you, and you become part of the darkness, and all you can do is add darkness. The only way you can shed light a prisoner cannot release himself from prison. Only someone on the outside could release himself from prison. In order to bring Hashem into this world, you have to be something of an outsider. It's because you would rather be elsewhere, because you don't feel comfortable. You would rather be absorbed within Hashem. But you're forcing yourself to come back into this world. Only then are you able to be successful. It's this dynamic, this it has to be ongoing. This constant, vibrant interchange of you, you're, you want to escape the body and the ego and the sense of separation, and then you force yourself back. And then you again, you reach, okay, now I'm back, now I, I have to get out. And then you bring yourself back. It's this constant back and forth. You breathe in and you breathe out. That's what keeps you alive. That's what keeps you fresh. It keeps you honest. It keeps you grounded. And it keeps you effective. The moment you lose that edge, the moment you grow complacent and comfortable, you've lost it. You're no longer God's emissary. You're no longer fulfilling your divine mission. You're not even capable of fulfilling your divine mission because you lost that connection with the divine. It's when you have that connection, that clear connection to the divine, because all you care about is you want to become absorbed within Hashem. You don't care about yourself then you could be an effective ambassador. Then you could be an effective representative of godliness and bring holiness and godliness and goodness into this world. And this is a point that not many people understand. That's what the ethics of our fathers is teaching us. It's teaching us how to live, how we're supposed to live our life. That on one hand, you have to feel, experience that you, you would rather die, but you force yourself to live. And you come back into life and you do it vigorously and vibrantly and energetically. But the next moment, Hashem, please, I want to be with you. And then you force yourself back. And then the Mishnah says, by force, I force myself to die. What do you mean I force myself to die? Why do I have to force myself to die? Because now I want to live. I just brought myself back into reality. And I realized this is what Hashem wants of me, so I want to live. I'm, it's, I'm, it's genuine. It's for real. This is my mission. So I'm doing my mission wholeheartedly. But then you have to force yourself to die. Once again, you have to experience that death, that desire to die, that desire to cling to Hashem, that desire to go beyond the narrow constrictions and limitations and to become absolutely one with Hashem. And then when you reach that level, then you have to force yourself back to live, force yourself again to live. And once you're living and you're excited about living, now force yourself. Once you're excited about living, now force yourself to die again. Now force yourself to want to die, to want to become one with Hashem, to want to go beyond. And back and forth and back and forth. And that's the only way 
we can successfully achieve and accomplish our mission of bringing holiness and godliness and the essence of Hashem into this world. Not many Jews have negotiated this path successfully. Some Jews have gone off you know, on some mountaintop and have escaped this world, disconnected themselves from this world and buried their heads in the sand and completely cut off any connection to this world. Forgetting that this is God's world. This is the Jews' mission. We are charged with this mission to transform this world into a dwelling place for Hashem. You can't ignore this world and run away and pretend the world doesn't exist. Hide behind some... Um, you know, there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. On the other hand, there are Jews who are so comfortable with this world. <laughs> they have no connection with anything transcendent. With any, there's no yearning for godliness. There's no hunger. There's no lovesickness for Hashem. There's no connection with anything that's beyond. When you lose that godly connection, you're no longer effective. You have taken yourself out of, out of, the, out of the game. You can't bring any holiness into this world. You can't bring any godliness into this world. You can't bring any light into this world. You can't bring any healing into this world. You can't bring any tikkun olam to this world. All you can bring is darkness and confusion. We can understand this according to what has been explained above. First, one must come to the point where one can arouse within oneself such an intense love for Hashem that one desires clot Hanefesh, while remaining alive, is um, despite oneself. Only for the purpose of fulfilling Hashem's will that one reveal godliness and his oneness in this world. This is the meaning of despite yourself, you must live. Afterwards, though, when one is ready in a state of retreat, then one should once more arouse within oneself the love of Hashem that surges ever forward in Klat Hanefesh. In this way, one injects into the state of retreat, into the world, a higher spiritual quality. Um, furthermore, in this state of withdrawing back into the world, one can possibly become drawn down into lowly mundane affairs. To forestall this possibility, one should once more arouse within oneself the sensation of running forward, loving Hashem to the extent of Klat Hanefesh. This is the meaning of despite yourself, you must die, i.e. against your will, which is now in a state of retreat, the very opposite of Klat Hanefesh, which denotes expiring and leaving the body. This is explained elsewhere at length with reference to this Mishnah. Despite yourself, you must live. With the help of the life of life, blessed be he, who enables one to cope with this compulsion to live despite yourself. This means that when one's love of God is surging forward in Kodhanefesh, one forces oneself against one's will to remain alive within the body in order to reveal down here in this world the life of life, that divine force which gives life to the world. He added another reason why it's important, because we can't help but be affected by the world around us. A human being is a social creature by habit. We are earthy beings, and we can't help but be affected by the world around us. And the world around us has a very powerful pull and draw, 
And um, so it's very easy for us to be affected by it and to become materialistic, to be drawn into its orbit. So in order to be able to be able to resist, to affect the world and not and resist the temptation to be defined by the world, in order for us to be able to redefine the world, you have to be above the world. You have to have some connection that takes you out of this world. But if you never leave this world, and you're never above this world, and you're only defined by this world, the world will swallow you up. The world will affect you in a negative way and draw you down and schlep you down. Instead of you elevating the world up, the world will schlep you down. So you have to be very careful. You have to have a connection to something that's greater, to something that's above this world. Otherwise, we're like uh, those people in the cave who are in the mine, those biners who are lost. You know, as long as you have a connection to something above, above ground, as long as there's an opening and there's a hope of escape and there's a yearning to escape, then you can survive, even in the mind. But if you have no opening and you have no communication and there's no hope of escaping, of going beyond, and that becomes your whole reality, then you're buried. You become buried. You become buried in the mind and you're buried and you die spiritually. So you, we could be buried by this world. This world is powerful. Let's not kid. I mean, we all know it very powerful. So instead of being buried, you have to have a line of communication. You have to have an opening, a hope, a yearning to go beyond, to, to see the sun and to, to be free from this trap, from this confinement. But if you don't feel it's a trap, you don't feel it's a confinement, then you're hopelessly lost. <laughs> then then you'll, you'll be buried alive. And the same is true spiritually. If a person doesn't have this yearning to escape and to go beyond then you'll just be buried alive spiritually and you'll lose, you'll lose that spiritual strength and ability. To be continued next week. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.